0: All right, we good? Do you have a stool I can step up on or something? I'm Mike and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 23rd, 1985, and for that I'm grateful. I'm going to have a birthday here in a couple of weeks. I want to thank the committee for inviting me. I want to thank Scott for calling me the other day. It was really out of the blue. I was on my way... Uh, somewhere or coming from someplace and, and my phone rang and I answered and Scott said, hi Mike, this is Scott Lee and, uh, I'm in Tennessee and I just listened to your CD and we'd like to invite you to speak. And I said, well that, that's great Scott. And he said, it'll be, uh, this weekend. <laughs> and, uh, I had just said to my, uh, wife and to my accountant that I would get my taxes done because I was working on a, on a project that that kept me from getting that done. So I had to speed things up. And the next day, Scott called me and he said, uh, you know, we need the, the topics of a couple of sessions for the taper. And I gave him a couple of topics, but I said, I have absolutely no time to prepare. So uh, tomorrow, you're going to get my experience on a couple of topics that uh, are very, very dear to me. Now I gave my sobriety date, and the reason I do that is because I got sober in Texas, and that's what they do in Texas. And uh, down there in Austin, in a clubhouse, there was a guy one night, it was a Saturday night meeting, and they're going around the room and introducing themselves. And, yeah, they all say it different ways. Somebody will say, you yeah, know, I, I haven't drank for this period of time, or my sobriety date is this. And this guy says, I'm Ed, and I haven't found it necessary to have a drink for 14 years. Six months, three weeks, two days, and six hours. The guy up front turns around and looks at Ed and says, Ed, that's a lie. I saw you last Thursday night and you were so drunk you couldn't walk down the street. He said, yeah, but it wasn't necessary. I am convinced that every drink that I had was necessary to get me to and keep me in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm grateful that the rooms were here. You know, I, I somebody had said, Mike, I think, said something about being nervous, and I want you to know I'm not. because I've got a pretty good idea what I'm going to say. So if anybody should be nervous, it should be you. You have no idea what you're going to hear. Hmm. But I do feel a little bit like a mosquito in a nudist camp. I know what to do, I just don't know where to start. (laughs) When I was six years old, I set the house on fire. Only in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting does that bring a laugh, you know? Now, I want to create the scene for you. I grew up in a little town outside of Buffalo, New York. is East Aurora. And I set the house on fire. And we live on a busy street. And they've got it blocked off. And the fire trucks are there. Seven kids in the family. Mom and dad. My dad's a recovering alcoholic. He was alive at the time. So a member of AA doing wonderful. My mother, a member of Al-Anon, doing Wonderful. Here I am on the porch with my brothers and the neighbors. There's panic all over the neighborhood. They're breaking down the door. And I'm watching this. There's only one thing going on in my mind, and that is there is no way I'm ever telling anyone that I did this. And I knew that I couldn't tell anyone that. And it was a secret. And here I was, six years old, carrying this secret. Now my dad was new in recovery, and so there was still a little bit of emotional unbalance in our home. There was some fighting going on at night, and things like this. And I'd lay up in my bed, and I would, and I would think that you know I was the cause of this. I mean, talk about an ego problem at six. And then I was up in the in the main street of our store uh, of our town, a little five and dime uh, store, and there was something I wanted, and I didn't have money to pay for it, so I took it. And I knew I couldn't tell anyone, so I kept that a secret. And I was going to the Catholic school, and when I got to second grade, they asked me not to come back. And, you know, they said it was because I was sick or I was this, or. but I knew it was because I didn't measure up. I knew that they didn't like me. I knew I wasn't as good as the other kids in the school. So they put me in public school, and I got in trouble right away because I did some behavior that wasn't acceptable. And for some reason, this was the type of thing that that I was doing very early in my life. None of those things made me an alcoholic. And I understand that. I was at my brother John's first communion, my older brother. Uh, he was in second grade, so I was in first grade. I don't remember the age, but um, we stole some beer out of the cooler. We went and drank it. And I didn't dance with all the girls or rob a bank or do anything cool. But I went and took some more and I hid it in the woods so I could have it the next day. See, from the very first time I started drinking alcohol, there was something about that. There was a thrill involved in drinking and partying that was very interesting to me. So I knew I wanted to do this. So I had that beer, I hid more, and every opportunity from that point on that I could get alcohol, I did. It's convenient when you have older brothers, you know, living in your house. And their friends would, you know, for, for 50 cents, they'd, they'd uh, you know, tack 50 cents on the price of a bottle of MD-2020. You know, and I could get as drunk and as sick as you can get. Well, this progressed and, you know, I don't, my drunk not good. Glamorous, you know, and, and, and I didn't have any period of social drinking in my life. I didn't have that, and you know, I hear people say they, they drank socially for periods of time and their alcoholism progressed. Mine really didn't. You know, I never drank socially. I never drank for any other reason other than the effect produced by the alcohol. That was the only reason that I ever drank. Someone this morning talked about basketball. And their brother was a professional basketball player and they used to like to play basketball. And then they started drinking and basketball was no longer important. You're going to find this hard to believe. But I wanted to be a basketball player. Now, there was a basketball player for Niagara University named Calvin Murphy. And this guy could dribble a basketball. And he'd be going down the court and he'd do some stuff with that basketball that would just blow your mind. I wanted to be like him. So I started practicing basketball and I would get down on my back and I'd be dribbling this basketball and, and they noticed it. So this community I grew up in every year had a basketball tournament. It wasn't quite as big as NCAA, but it was big for our town. They had me do the halftime show. And I'd go out there and do this. And then they had a traveling team. And I would try out for the traveling team, but it was difficult for me to do that because I was a heavy smoker. <laughs> so I'm trying out for the basketball team. I go in the locker room one day, and I, just in time to see Paul putting a lid on a mayonnaise jar. And I said, what do you got there, Paul? And he says, oh, Mike, come here. And he handed it to me, and it was whiskey. And I took a hit off of that mayonnaise jar, and I liked whiskey. No longer was I interested in basketball. So I could really identify when you said that. That actually ended my basketball career. I think I probably would have made it somewhere, too. You know, and when you're kids and you're getting together in the neighborhood and you're playing wiffle ball or basketball or or the things we would do, I I would participate in these things, but it was important for me to have a a water bottle. And I usually had a colored one that would be like white or something black so they couldn't see that mine didn't have water in it. So I would put alcohol in it and then I could go play with the kids and hang out and, and do these things. And as I started into school... I recognized that they would smell this on my breath. So it became a problem for me to be able to drink the way I wanted to drink and go to school. So some friends of mine came across. It's kind of like Howard talks about his equipment missing. These guys happened to, there was a drugstore that was robbed in our community. And right after that, there was an abundance of barbiturates. And someone had given me some of those. And I could take those and get a similar effect to the alcohol. And nobody would smell it on my breath. And then I would drink on the weekends. So I was really kind of a periodic drinker then. All right, well. So what happened was this wasn't working for me. Now, my dad's in AA My dad's sponsor came in in 1946. He was on stage when the traditions were adopted in Cleveland in 1950. We had AA in our house. Monday nights, my dad and his sponsor would be at the court getting getting AA members from the judge and and taking them to meetings. My mother would be cooking meals for these guys, and uh, I'd be trying to avoid going home. My drinking and and other chemicals progressed. I made it to my first detox. And, you know, I always like to tell you, my story's not macho. It really isn't. Um, I'm in my first detox. Well, it wasn't really a detox. It was Children's Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) While I'm in Children's Hospital, my dad and his other AA buddies have come to visit me and while i was there they talked to me about my drinking and they suggested that when i get out of there i come to alcoholics anonymous and also go to counseling and i agreed to do both believing that the condition was once i got out or or if i agreed to this they would let me out so i did and i started going to counseling i was really trying to be honest about everything and And uh, six weeks after my first counseling session, I started smoking weed with a counselor. I remember saying to my mom and dad, can I go to counseling early? (laughs) (laughs) I like this therapy. Around that time, I got to go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous And it was at my dad's home group, the Hillbilly Group in Orchard Park, New York, and it was downstairs in the basement of the police station. I remember getting out of the car and looking around to make sure none of my friends were there to see me. You know, I didn't want anybody passing by to see me going into this AA meeting with these old people. Excuse me. I get down there, they got a low ceiling, smoke filled room, wooden tables. They're going around the room, kind of like the club in Texas, where they're just introducing themselves. And this one says, I'm Art, I'm an alcoholic. And this one says, I'm Dorothy, and I'm an alcoholic. And it came to me, with as much sincerity as I could have at 15 years old, when my life was already plummeted to the point that I'm in an AA meeting, I say, I'm Mike, and I'm a problem drinker with alcoholic tendencies. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. There was something about admitting that I was an alcoholic that somehow in my mind made me think that I was going to have to stop drinking. If I came to you and I said I was an alcoholic, I felt like that meant it was final. And I could not imagine how I would ever get through life Christmas or St. Patrick's Day and some of the bigger holidays, you know, how would you do that? But I came to those meetings and I listened and I heard some amazing things. They said things like, if you quack like a duck, waddle like a duck and look like a duck, you're probably a duck. I'd go home. I'm looking in the mirror I didn't get it. I didn't understand what they were talking about. They said, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. I said, you never drank with me. Not me. I'm different. They said, Mike, if you keep doing the things you're doing, this is what's going to happen to you. And they began to tell me the experiences that they had. They began to share with me in a general way their experiences of what had happened What their life was like, what had happened, and what their life was like today. They said, if you continue to drink, these are the things that are going to happen to you. Over the next ten years, I came to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis. And I never got 30 days sober in a row. I saw you do it. I saw people get chips. I'd see people get a 30-day chip six months and a year and they'd have a cake and clap and I'd get a resentment. And I thought I heard. This is what I thought I heard when I came to the meetings. You don't drink and go to meetings. Man, I'm telling you, I, I wouldn't drink and I wanted to be sober. I did. I desperately wanted to be sober. And I'd wake up with a burning desire to be sober. I mean, not just a fleeting thought of, man, I'd like to be sober. No, I wanted to be sober. And I'd come to these meetings and I thought I was doing what you did. And I wouldn't drink and I'd come to the meeting and I'd leave that meeting. I'd be sicker than I was when I started. And give me three days and I was sicker. And my mind would take over and all those secrets that I had stored up inside me, all the differences that I had, the fact that I was a disappointment to everybody and all the things I had done. Every time I quit drinking, they came to the surface. And I got so sick, I wanted to commit suicide over and over. And the things they told me would happen would happen. And I went to the hospitals and I went through the the pain and agony of alcoholism. I even got to go to a psychiatric ward. That was a treat. No, it really was. man. Like, I was probably 20 years old then, and the girl that was doing the intake was really attractive. She was. She was probably just fresh out of college, and and she's got her clipboard, and she's doing the intake, and I'm trying to convince her that a life with me would be a good move. I continued to drink and rebel against the people who were trying to be good to me, and that was you folks. Everything that was good in my life for some reason turned out to be a disappointment to someone, and that's how I felt. The greatest achievement I had ever had before coming to the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and getting sober was graduating high school. Now, I know that's not a big event, but it's huge for me. And it's huge because I went very little. When I was there, I was intoxicated. And when I walked across the stage that afternoon to get my diploma, and out in the audience is my dad, my mom, and my grandmother, and the people that would be most proud of me. Someone in the audience yells out as loud as they can one of my nicknames. Drugs! And before that diploma was in my hand, I knew, again, I was nothing more than a disappointment. I wish I could tell you that I woke up that day and... Stopped drinking, but I didn't. My drinking continued, as did many other chemicals that I did. I was one of these guys who just did whatever you could do that would get you there as quick as you could and as much of it as you could, and it didn't matter. And, you know, I don't know any of this OD stuff, man, because I I don't know if I ever did that, but I did so many chemicals that, you know, I don't know what happened to me. And on April twenty first, 1985... I broke into a house of a friend of mine to steal his gun because I'd finally, after all of this pain and, and despair, I'd finally gotten the courage to commit suicide. And I tore that house apart looking for his gun and they were away that weekend uh, uh, target shooting. And I made it to the top floor of that house sometime in the early morning hours it was beginning to get daylight and I'm looking out the window and I'm calculating if I dive out head first am I going to die or am I going to flop around on the sidewalk in pain. And I didn't want any more pain. I wanted the pain to stop. And I saw three ladies walking down the street wearing funny church hats and I have had a lot of hallucinations in my life and I don't know if that was real or not. But I'll tell you, it was profound in my life because when I saw these women wearing these church hats, it brought me back to the days when my grandmother used to come to our house on Sundays after church and her and her friends would have these funny-looking church hats on. And and I saw these ladies and it made me think of church and, and the God of my childhood. And by myself that morning, I got down on my knees in that room and I said the prayer that many of you, probably all of you have said, and that was just, God help me. My experience was a little different than Bill Wilson's. The room did not light up. The room didn't, I didn't feel a great wind of the spirit. Actually, I didn't feel anything. I went out and drank the rest of that day. But that night I picked up the telephone and I called the only person left in my life that I thought would, one, be willing to answer the phone and two, Maybe be willing to help me. And it was my dad. And he asked where I was and, and I told him and, and he agreed to meet me the next day and he and another, another member of Alcoholics Anonymous came and they, they did what we call a 12 step call. They, they sat down with me in a, in a diner and, and we drank coffee and we talked about my options. And I didn't have any. And there were people that were looking for me. And I was scared. And I was sick, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't think AA would work, and I didn't think the church would work, and I didn't think I could get better. I really didn't believe it, not for a minute, because my experience over the last 10 years had proven that it wouldn't work, not for me anyway. Through a series of events, they, uh, my dad came up with the idea uh, to call a good friend of his who lived down in Texas. And this guy's name was Big John. And, uh, and he called John up and he said, John, I got Mike here and we've got this situation and we don't know what to do. And, um, John said, stick him on an airplane and send him down here to see me for a couple of weeks. On May 5th, 1985, I arrived in Abilene, Texas. And I was met there at the airport by Big John and two other sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. They always came to get me in teams, too. (laughs) And they met me at the airport, and we drove 90 miles up to Brownwood to go to an AA meeting that night. And I don't remember a whole lot, and I was still very sick. And I do remember Big John on the way there. He says, kid. He always called me kid. He actually had two names for me. He had kid and he had another name that I don't share anymore because Howard asked me not to. And uh, and it's not necessary to share anyway. But on the way there, he said, kid, in in Texas, we give our sobriety date. And I would recommend if it comes to you tonight at the meeting, give a sobriety date if you've got one. And then maybe you want to pass. And that was okay with me. Now, he didn't say shut up and listen. He didn't say take the cotton out of your ears and stick it in your mouth. He just said give a sobriety date and listen. So I made up one. Heck, I could have. I mean, if I was to speak at that time, I could only get about a seven-word sentence out, and three of them would start with F. I don't remember the meeting, but I remember the meeting after the meeting. Have y'all, you know what that is, right? That's that time where where one alcoholic shares with another alcoholic honestly about their experience, and we get back to John's little one-bedroom apartment. John was a big man, and he was from Maine, and he was living in Texas. He got he got sober. Uh, his sobriety date was October 28th, 1951, and he was pacing. And he looks down at me. He always had a cigar in his mouth too. And he looked down at me and he said, "Kid, how long you been around the deal?" Now with as much ego is you can have when you weigh 90 pounds, everything you own is in a cardboard box, and you're wearing someone else's pants. That was where I was at at that moment. I said, oh, about 10 years. He sat down, got a little fidgety, and looked, and he said, Kid... We can show you by living proof how you never have to live this way again. And if you want to get sober, I'll go to hell and back with you. And if you don't, you can go to hell alone. I'm waiting for welcome to Texas. (laughs) Guys, I was in hell. He said, you were nothing but a thief. Maybe not the kind of thief they'd kick in a joint or steal from his mother's purse. He knew my background. He said, you are a worse kind of thief than that because you stole from those you love the most their right to happiness. Bill talked about Ebby going into the cave of despair and grabbing them by the hand and walking them out toward the sunlight of the Spirit. I want you to know when John said you were nothing but a thief because you stole from those you love the most their right to happiness. That was what he did for me. He entered my cave where I was there hopeless, in despair, feeling like I was a disappointment and I couldn't do this. And he said, come on, kid. And he showed me the sunlight. John didn't sleep a lot. He had a one-bedroom apartment. I went for two weeks. I stayed for two years. He gave me the bed. That's sponsorship. He gave of himself unselfishly. The very first morning in Texas, John comes into the bedroom. Now he probably had me up till three, four o'clock in the morning talking about AA because there was nothing that he would rather do than talk about AA. And that's what he did. And we talked AA and talked AA. And I remember that night <laughs> he was telling me stories and making me laugh. I hadn't laughed in so long and he was funny and, and, and he comes in the next morning and starts banging his hands and he says, come on kid, we got places to go, people to see, things to do. I'm like, you're eighty, and I don't know anybody in Texas. What do we have to do? Come on, come on, let's go. And he brought me over to his best friend's house, Bill O, and Bill lived in Brownwood. John actually lived in Bangs, Texas. I don't know if you've ever been to Bangs, but Bangs is like population of about six hundred people and you know maybe a thousand sheep. I used to say nervous, but. (laughs) So we go over to, we go over to Bill O's house and we pull up in front of the house and John says, Kid, this is the Midwest Tape Library. It's the largest AA tape library in the world. And I'm like, So what? I didn't say it. You know, I'm thinking, Well, we go into the tape library, and he introduces me to Bill. Now, some of you guys might have known Bill. I'm not sure. But Bill had one arm and one eye. Okay, Bill was a real alcoholic. Now, Bill got sober October 21st of 51. John got sober October 28th of 51. And Bill never let him forget it. (laughs) So we go in this day, and I meet Bill. One eye, one arm. Now, he lost those in a car accident. Well, two car accidents. lost the eye in one accident, the arm in another accident. He introduces me to Bill, and I still had secrets. And I secretly named Bill Grumpy, because he just looked that way. And we sat down at the table. And we were drinking instant coffee. And for you newer guys, instant coffee is like dirt and hot water and you mix it up. And they called it coffee. Well, these two guys are sitting there talking and he's got all these reel-to-reel tapes and all this AA memorabilia around and his wife Arbutus is in the back and she's like the al you know, Pioneer from the 40s, and and they're in the, she's in the back, and we're sitting at this table, and, and they're probably talking about AA history, maybe some of their friends. I mean, they knew, and they were friends with Ebby and uh, Bill W. and Lois, and. Uh, John was good friends with Bill D, A.A. number three, and they knew Sam Shoemaker. So these guys just, and here I'm sitting there at the table, and they're talking, and they're sharing, and they're going on, and I'm drinking the instant coffee, and I thought it was my turn. (laughs) Come on. Now, you're laughing because you've been there, right? I mean, I was innocent, but I really thought it was my turn. So what I did is I volunteered one of my sentences. I had nothing else to say. Well, Bill starts banging his finger down on the table, and he looks at me with his one eye and says, Young man, the first thing we clean up in here is our mouth. Grumpy. Grumpy. Now, I had kind of warmed up to John because we had talked all night long and I had known him from visits uh, with my family over the years. (coughs) But Bill, I hadn't warmed up with. So when we got out of there, I said to John, I said, John, are you guys going to try to tell me how to talk too? I mean, what's up with this guy? He really thinks he can tell me how I'm going to talk? I'm 25 years old. I still weighed 90 pounds and couldn't keep any food in me. He said, kid, this program saved our life. And it may save yours. And we knew these people. And he mentioned some of the people that had gone before them. And he said, we have a tremendous amount of respect for this program. And you might be the only big book that some new guy or girl get to read. And they're going to read it by seeing you. And we want you to be a good example. And from that day to this, I have never used profanity in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I try to be a good example of what this program is. And I'm grateful that he took the time to explain that to me. Because if he hadn't explained it, I wouldn't have gotten it. See, I didn't, you know, they say things like we didn't know that we didn't know. I really needed to have these things explained to me. I didn't. I wasn't the brightest bulb on the porch. And I had a lot of anger issues when I came in here. I said this morning, I was one of these guys that, that would cheer up this whole room by leaving. It was like somebody licked all the red off my candy. Okay? I didn't understand it. Now, John traveled a lot and we'd go over to Bill's during the day and I would do the things that they asked me to do, sometimes reluctantly, but I just did it because I had gotten to a point where I was at least willing. You know, they say honesty, open mindedness and willingness. That's not how it came for me. It came willingness first. Okay, And then I had a little bit of honesty, and then in time I began to get open-minded. That open-mindedness came slow for me. I was, I, I was in the debating society. I was a rebel. I did think I was different. And I was basing it on my experiences. And my mind was shut, and it did take a while before it was opened up. But I would come to the meetings, and I would do the assignments they gave me. And they did give me assignments, like stand at the door and greet people. And I did. I didn't want to. I didn't really care. But I just did what I was asked to do. I was there anyway. It wasn't like I had a choice, you know. It's like people say, well, go to 90 meetings. I don't know how many meetings I went to. That's all I did. For two years. Just hang around with John, go to meetings. Can I get a job? No, you can't get a job. You don't need a job. You need meetings. And we did that. I remember one day, <clears throat> I didn't want to go to a meeting. It was a, They had a meeting in Bangs in the drugstore. It was on like a Monday or Tuesday night at about 5.30. And and some of the guys after work would come in there. Most of them were farmers. And they would go into the meeting. And pretty much it was the same thing every Monday night. And this particular night, there was a baseball game on. And I liked baseball. And I wanted to see it. So I said to John, (coughs) now I'm starting to get honest, okay? I don't want to go to the meeting tonight. Why not, kid? Well, there's a ball game on. I was thinking I might just take a break from the meeting for just one night. And besides that, they're just talking about the same thing. You know, every time I'm there, it's, it's no big deal. It's not like I'm going to learn anything. And he said, kid, you don't go to the meeting to get. You go to the meeting to give. I said, yeah, you, Mr. AA, not me, what do I have to give? I've got nothing. I don't know anything, and I've got nothing to give. Nothing. He said, oh, no, kid, that's not true. He said, how long have you been sober? I don't know if it was 45 days, whatever it was. It was early in sobriety. And I told him, and he said, there may be somebody there tonight for their first meeting. And when you introduce yourself and you give your sobriety date, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, if he can stay sober for 45 days, maybe I can stay sober today. It's your example that might be all it takes for that person to come back. And again, I've never not gone to a meeting but to give, not to get. And by giving, I've learned and received so much and so much abundance just by giving. Well, we continue to you know, to this regimen of we'd get up in the morning and we'd go over to the drugstore and we'd have coffee with some of the AA guys and then we'd go to Bill's house and we would meet with Bill and we'd drink the instant coffee and we'd learn about the history and they would talked to, to me, and they introduced me to people, and it was just wonderful. And then in the afternoon, we'd have a little lunch, and then John would take me out to Brownwood Lake. I know Howard's been there at the retreat out there, but we'd go to Brownwood Lake, and we'd go swimming. And then after that, we'd, uh, we'd go back and maybe take a nap, and then we'd go to the evening meeting. We Sometimes I'd drive for two hours to go to a meeting, and, and sometimes it was right in town. But we went to meetings all the time. And I remember asking John, well, how, how, why do we do this? Why why are we doing this every day like this? He said, kid, in this program, it's more than just not drinking, okay? What we have to do is we have to take care of every part of our lives. And he said, what I'm trying to do with you is proper diet, proper rest, some exercise, and a lot of AA. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Now, I'm not a nutritionist, but I knew my diet was not proper. I wasn't real sure about the exercise, okay? And I know staying up till 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning listening to him smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee was not really proper rest. However, I get it. Okay, I get it today looking back at that time, what he was doing. And there is not a day go by where I don't have a deep sense of gratitude for every minute that he took and spent with me. We traveled all over the country and Canada, and John spoke everywhere. And he, eventually, when I was stable enough to drive, he would have me be his driver. And we'd be driving up to Saskatchewan or wherever, and uh, John would have his, his books with him. And he had the big book, and the 12 and 12, uh, As Bill Sees It, and A.A. Comes of Age. And those were his four favorite books. And while we'd be driving, if we weren't listening to a AA cassette tape, he'd be reading to me. And then he'd quiz me. What's Dr. Bob's address? <laughs> 855 Ardmore Avenue. He came back from one of his trips that I didn't get to go on, and I said to him, I did it. And he said, what? And I said, I read the big book. I'd finally gotten through it. He says, oh, great, kid. He said, I read, I read Moby Dick, and I don't remember a damn bit of it. He said, we've got to study that book. What do you think we're doing the next day? We're sitting there studying the big book together. Starting at the beginning of the book letting me ask questions, underlining the things that made sense to me, debating the things that didn't. I read in there in the doctor's opinion that about this psychic change. Here I am, 25 years old. I knew I wanted a psychic change. That was cool. And I thought I want one of them. And I read a little farther in it and said the only thing necessary was to be willing to follow a few simple rules. I didn't know what those rules were, but I was going to the meetings and I was asking Bill and John questions. And, and you know somehow it was explained to me that what I needed to do was to go through this book and these steps and begin to experience these things in my life. That I could clean up the wreckage of my past. And they, they shared with me how to do that. And I began to do it. And I'm grateful. At nine months, I received a phone call from my brother who was getting married asking me to be the best man at his wedding now I want you to know I went to my sister's wedding and during the wedding it was a, they had the reception at my parents' home and uh I think my dad knew that I was you know just before the alcoholic gets disruptive okay like a, a sober alcoholic knows okay and my dad came up to me and he said hey mike I put a case of beer in your car Well, it probably really wasn't my car either, but it was a car I was driving. So I said, hey dad, could, could I leave? And he said, sure, and don't worry about it. I'll tell your mother and, you know, if anybody asks, I'll cover for you. I was sober ten years before I figured out what he did. So when I say I didn't, I wasn't real bright, you know, I didn't catch on real quick. I didn't. I mean, it took me a while. John would say, uh, Kid, would you make me breakfast? Could you make me some eggs and make a little yolk on them? You know. uh, somehow he thought I could cook. And I said, oh yeah, I can do that. So I made him breakfast. And I don't think the breakfast was good. I don't think it was bad. I just think it was breakfast. For the entire rest of the day, everyone that he saw he said, this kid's a cook. He made me breakfast today, one of the best breakfasts I ever had. He started to lift me up. He started to find things that I could do and give me those little things and then he would catch me doing them and then he'd praise me. And he'd say, the kid's doing a great job. Do you think I wanted to come to Alcoholics Anonymous? Man, I started saying, I like being around this guy. They lifted me up. They didn't put me down and tell me to sit down and shut up. I didn't know anything. As Howard says, if that would have worked, I'd have been sober when I was six. Sorry if you were going to use that, Howard. (laughs) One time, uh, Bill Bill taped. Conferences all over the place, man. And you know, he really wasn't grumpy. He was a saint of a man. I, 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 I need to say that. You know, these guys were incredible. They were absolutely incredible. Anyway, uh, John says to me one day, "Hey, Bill is going up to Casper, Wyoming, and he'd like you to drive. He's not feeling very well. Would you be willing to do that?" Well, it's you know, of course. You know, I'd be honored. And then and then John says, well, I have to tell you, Bill's never let anybody drive for him. Now I'm thinking even Grumpy figured out who I am. <laughs> Interesting, though, Bill was feeling good enough to drive most of the way. He let me drive a little bit, but we're going through Denver, Colorado, and he's driving, and it is just snowing about as hard as it can snow. And Bill was a pipe smoker. Now remember, he had one arm and one eye. He's driving. It's snowing. Texans don't believe in the speed limit. And he's lighting his pipe. I'm having a new experience with my higher power. It's kind of like driving with Dan today. <laughs> uh. You know, these guys had so much fun. and what was so hilarious about that was, what do you think Bill was doing the whole time he's lighting his pipe? He's looking at me with his one eye. I'm thinking I'm just getting started. What fun we had. You know, they shared sobriety with me. It's kind of what I'm what I'm telling you. They lifted me up. They encouraged me. They made me feel good. I was down in our clubhouse one night (coughs) and, uh, This guy, AJ, he was always there. AJ had white hair and, you know, a golden tan and just good looking man, you know, probably 70 years old and just really was a nice, nice man. Always had this great big, huge smile plastered on his face. And and this particular night, I said, AJ, how are you? And he says, I'm doing fine. I thought he was on pills. I said, you really mean that? And he said, yes. And it just keeps getting better. I left that meeting that night and I thought I want to be more like AJ. I'm going to stop complaining. I'm going to start saying I'm doing fine, even if maybe I don't feel that good at that moment. I'm going to say it anyway. I figured by then I was just reporting the facts in advance. It wasn't long, and I'm at a meeting and and I'm a door greeter that night and I'm shaking hands and I got that smile on my face and you know what? You know, the smile on my face then was not at all like the smile on my face now because my teeth were all rotted, okay? And I couldn't smile. It took me a long time to, to have the dental work done. And then when I did, I actually would have to get in the mirror. And this is years after I got sober. I would get in the mirror and I practiced smiling because I had never done it. This lady comes in and she says, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing good and it keeps getting better. And she gave me a hug and she says, just wait till that pink cloud lifts. I went to my sponsor and I said, man, what's up with that? I said, this lady tells me this pink cloud's gonna lift. What, is all of a sudden I'm gonna be like not happy or something? And he says, kid, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about it. I want you to know that, you know, April 23rd, it'll be 26 years, and I'm still as excited, as passionate, as full of love, as full of joy, as full of happiness, if not more than I ever was then. And and the pink cloud hasn't lift. Because it's not a pink cloud, it's a state of mind. And it's a state of mind that results from doing these steps. And I do have control over that today. Now, I didn't know that. Right? Now, I'm going to speed up a few. Well, actually, I want to share something with you, and Then I'm going to speed up to my relationship with my sponsor today. Because sponsorship to me is very important. Not everything in my sobriety has gone the way that I want it to. When I wanted it to. How I wanted it to. But I'm in that tape library one day, and I meet Smitty. Some of you knew him, Dr. Bob's son. And Smitty was the only one still living that was there when Dr. Bob and Bill met at the gatehouse in Akron on the Cyberline estate. And Smitty said, Mike, did Bill or John tell you about the first guy that my dad and Bill worked with? Now, I knew enough about AA history then from hanging out with John and and reading that I wanted to impress Smitty. So I'm like, oh, yeah, Bill D., Akron City Hospital, AA number three. And I'm kind of going through this, and I'm sure Smitty was just kind of humoring me, you know, and being patient. And then he said, no, Mike, he said, there was someone before Bill D. There was a guy named Eddie R., and my mom and dad moved Eddie into our house. And they gave him the bedroom. They actually moved his whole family in. It was almost like Dr. Bob's house was the first halfway house. Anyway, they moved Eddie and his family in. And he said Eddie was a bad drunk. And at night, he would he would escape. He would open the window and he'd climb down the drain pipe. And he'd go find alcohol. Bill and Dr. Bob, when they figured out that Eddie's gone, they'd go find Eddie. And as Smitty said, they were trying to carry the message to Eddie as they were getting it. See, they didn't have really a message yet. Other than one drunk talking to another, they were finding hope. They were finding the magic. He said, well, Eddie was a crazy drunk. And one afternoon, Eddie was chasing my mom, Ann Smith, around the house with a butcher knife. And he said Eddie had to be committed. He said, Mike, the first alcoholic that Dr. Bob and Bill tried to work with had to be committed. In my mind, I'm thinking Eddie's a failure, just like Mike. He said, but the story doesn't stop there. Fifteen years later at my dad's funeral, a guy came up to me and shook my hand and said, Do you know who I am? And Smitty said, Why, you're Eddie. And Eddie said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm a member of the Youngstown group. For the first time in over 10 years, I knew that I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I learned something from the story of the first guy that Bill and Dr. Bob may have felt like they failed. What I learned from him was that Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't built on success. It evolved from failure. The seed was planted. It just took 15 years before it sprouted. I left that library feeling hopeful, knowing that I belonged in Alcoholics Anonymous, and if Eddie made it, I could make it. That I didn't have to be successful. All I had to do was keep coming back. Alcohol took care of the rest. It beat me into a condition of reasonableness. So then my mind eventually became open. And then I became receptive to the things that the men and the women of Alcoholics Anonymous had to share with me. And I began to watch your example and see what you did. And then I could do that. They walked me through the steps. They introduced me to these people. They had these experiences go on, and I got to live this stuff and meet people. 1987. It was time for me to. How am I doing on time? This this watch looks like it's stopped. Is it about five after five? Okay. Uh, 1987. I, I said to Big John, um, "It's five after." Yeah, we're not hungry. Okay, cool. Neither am I. Another cup of coffee, and I'll just keep going and going. Hard to be going. Come on, save me some time. Yeah. Now, I said to John, I said, I, I want to move to Arizona. I lived there for a little while when I was a kid, and I wanted to move back. And John and I had visited there a couple times, and and I had a friend there, a couple of people that I knew. My grandmother lived there, um, well, my grandmother's sister. My grandmother had died. And uh, actually, my grandmother, i ought got to tell you that. All these people in my life, like her last words to me when I saw her were, please stop drinking, you know. And when I got sober, I was able to really feel good, you know, once I got sober, I could feel good that that my life was unfolding, that I was sober, that I could do this. And here in 1987, I'm leaving Texas to move to Arizona, and I get a job as a, a construction helper, a laborer. I'm carrying drywall for this company. And... Uh, and I'm doing that, and I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm going to a lot of meetings, and I'm and I'm really, really involved. And I had two years of John, and I'll tell you, two years of John and Bill was like, you know, I, I had like a degree in AA history and stuff. And I, it was just crazy. But I was so absorbed in it and so passionate about it. And here I am. I'm, I'm trying to get started in life, and I'm in a good environment, and I'm out at the swimming pool one afternoon, and this girl dies in the water. And I dove in after her and I introduced myself and she introduced herself and she said, my name's Joy and I'm a school teacher and I'm visiting my parents. Um, I live in Michigan and they live here at the apartments and I'm only here for a week. And and I said, I'm Mike and I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) That's all I knew, man, you know, it really is. And I probably gave her about 90 minutes of the last speaker I heard. And I asked her out on a date and and, and her schedule wouldn't permit it because she had other plans. She was just kind of booked up. And, and uh, you know... I, I guess I probably felt a little rejected, but, you know, um, Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me how to handle these things, and, and really, I knew what to do. I went to a meeting, and, and I didn't I didn't get sideways over this. I just went on, and, and I saw her a couple of days later, and she's back out at the pool, and, and she said, hey, my plans have changed, and uh my dad's got some tickets to a baseball game, and back then, played baseball in Arizona outdoors, and this was... August and it's hot in Arizona in August okay but she's attractive and I'm like baseball, I love baseball <laughs> I I picked her up in my Black Ford Fairmont yeah, with no air conditioning and we went to dinner. And she got her fortune and a fortune cookie and it read something like this. And, and, and again, it, you know, I can't give you exact, but, but it was something like, you can trust the man you're with. His love is true. Four months later, we were married and we uh, just celebrated 23 years in December. Yeah, I, I could tell you all about my relationships before coming to AA, and I think I will. But I don't want, I don't want you to think I'm gonna give you a fifth step, because I don't believe in that from the podium. But I'm gonna just sum them all up in one word, and that's pathetic. And I have a feeling that most of you can identify with that. And with that as your background for experience in relationships, if you don't have the principles of this program to bring into your life and into your relationship, I don't know how you can make it a successful marriage. All I did was what you guys taught me. And I love AA history, and tomorrow I'm going to talk a little bit about my experiences with AA history. No, I'm actually going to talk a lot about it. But in 1955, at the International Convention, Father Ed Dowling, one of Bill Wilson's spiritual advisors, gave a talk. And in that talk, he said that if he ever makes it to heaven, it'll be because he was backing away from hell. (laughs) I applied those principles to my marriage. I applied those principles to my life in AA. See, they told me things like, if you don't want to drink, don't go to the bars. Now, I know when we're sober, that makes great sense, but when we're new, I couldn't comprehend that because what if I need to play pool or you know or or do something? And it's the same thing in relationships, and I know Howard's going to talk about it, but for me, I just want to share briefly, and that is that a lot of my relationship was simply because the success in it was because I didn't do the things that would make it unsuccessful. And I began to do the things that would make it successful. Now, I mentioned Howard, and Howard's my sponsor. My first sponsor's initials were J.C., John C., And now I've got H.P. Howard P. Okay. Not sure what I was looking for. Uh, And you know these old guys were funny. And I don't. Howard, you're not an old guy. I'm talking about John now. It was June 10th, 1985. We're at a meeting. That was AA's 50th anniversary. We're coming home from the meeting, and John says, "Kid." Don't you think it's about time you get a sponsor? I'm living with him since May. I said, Well, I thought you were my sponsor. He said, You haven't asked me. All, the next nine miles back to his house were the longest nine miles I ever drove in a car. I'm driving. My palms are sweaty, okay? My chest is getting tight. I'm trying to figure out how I can ask this man to be my sponsor. We got back to his apartment and I said, well, will you? Will I what, kid? Will you be my sponsor? He said, I don't know if you want this thing bad enough yet. Ask me in 30 days. Now I want you to know that John knew that he had to deflate my ego at depth. Okay? He knew that my ego was my biggest problem. And he worked on that all the time. And I could see him now, man. When I give a nice talk somewhere and people come up and congratulations and uh, you know all the things. And, and John's right there on my shoulder. And he's saying, Kid, it's only six inches from a halo to a noose. Just don't go thinking you're the most important person in this room. Just remember you're one drink away from a drunk. Just remember you're only as big as when you stoop to lift someone else up. And I'm grateful. Because today I can try to to live that way. Am I hearing bells ring? It's like, wait a minute, do you hear that noise or is that just in my head? <laughs> if the noise in my head starts bothering you, I'll shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. (laughs) You too. (laughs) It's like when when you're new, you know, and your brain wakes you up in the middle of the night and asks you a question there's no answer to. And then you like lay there thinking about it. I moved out, my dad died in 1997. He and I, I gotta tell you, um, you know, the benefits to being sober. And to having the restored relationships in your life, to be able to go back to Buffalo, and I actually got to live there for a little while with a business that I was in in sobriety. We have three children that are absolutely phenomenal kids. They're, you know, today, my oldest is 21, my youngest is 16, my daughter's off to college, my oldest is at college. Um, you know, as a parent, I get to deal with the things that we deal with as parents. And, you know, thank God for sponsorship today, you know. Um, and I mean that. In, in 1997, uh, my dad, my dad passed away. And, I'd like to tell you that, you know, I was prepared for that. And I think I was. And at the time, I was prepared in such a way because of the principles of the program that I was able to bring comfort to others. I was able to help manage my mother's business for it and and do things that needed to happen. And I'm grateful for that. But one of the things I failed to do was to deal with that. I just hadn't dealt with it. And I sunk into a depression. And I, I didn't get into debilitating depressions, but I sunk into a depression, and I became somewhat disconnected from the program. And I wasn't participating in the program the way that I had been prior to that. And my life was just slowly getting worse, you know. And, and then the company I worked for laid everybody off, and I was out of a job. And we had financial problems, and we had to file bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. And, oh, it was just horrible, you know. And, 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 I, and I didn't have a sponsor at the time, you know. And, and I was just not right. And I went home one day and I said to my wife, we need to move to Arizona. And she says, why? And I said, I just feel like I need to do that. I want to be there. Now, it wasn't a hard sell. Because right? her parents lived there. So it was kind of an easy sell but we got out to Arizona and I found a little home group that I could go to during the day and I was trying to get plugged back into the program but it was slow I started doing some meditation during the day I was doing a lot of prayer I uh, we we're a member of a church and I went and I talked to my minister and and I was honest with him and he said Mike you've got to you've got to allow your dad yeah I'm, I'm paraphrasing but basically what he said is you haven't given your dad permission to be dead. He said you have to be okay with it. You have to give him permission. That was some of the best advice that any man had ever given me because what happened was I was able to then be free of that and move on. Well, I, I, I go to a meeting and there's a new guy at the meeting and he's just, man, this guy is just suffering. And, and after the meeting, I went up and I said, I'll give you a ride home. And he said, how would you know I needed a ride? And I said, don't worry about that. And, and I gave him a ride home. And, and I said, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock to take you to a meeting. And he said, I'll be ready. And he, and he was. And, and I, I, the third meeting that day that we were at, Howard was at. Howard didn't say anything profound, though. Know, but he was there. And he shared, you know, a few minutes and I listened and and afterwards I felt welcome in that group, and that's my home group today, and it's called We Ain't Dead Yet. Okay? But I had this stuff going on in my life. And I asked Howard if we could get together and have breakfast. That wasn't the first night. It was probably a week or two or three later. And, and Howard and I went and had breakfast. And, and I came to Howard to dump. And Howard's having breakfast and I'm having mine and I'm dumping. And then Howard looks at me and he says, Trust that your life is in divine order. I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe I didn't explain myself properly. Huh? <laughs> he says, trust that your life is in divine order and unfolding into goodness. And I went home, and at the time, I don't think I was having you know what you'd call serious marital problems, but my head was crazy. And I was doing meditation so what I started to do in my meditation was recognize that the relationship I had with my wife was it was in divine order that it didn't happen because of Mike's will okay that it that it wasn't Mike's will that put us together and then you know God is either everything or is nothing god didn't make a mistake and I recognized that and I began to have these affirmations That Joy was the best person in the world for me. And that this relationship was the best relationship. Not a good one, the best one. And she was the best mother for my children and the best woman for me to spend the rest of my life with. Thank you. My life got magnitudes better. My relationship just blossomed and today it continues to get better. Why? Because of my thoughts. Big John said, and I'd love to talk more about Howard, but I'm going to tell you something. If I do, then he's not going to have anything to say. And I don't want that to happen. Because I tell you, there's not very many people I'd like to listen to more than Howard. And, and we spend a lot of time together. And when Scott invited me, I don't think he told me right away that Howard was coming. I don't think you told me until I agreed. And I'm like, Howard, cool. We're gonna have fun now, and we are gonna have fun. And I know this weekend is gonna be fun. Got to experience a, an awful lot of stuff, and, and you know, over the weekend I'm gonna share some more with you. And I know some of you are getting fidgety, even though those chairs are comfortable. <laughs> and I know some of you are hungry, even though some of you went to that restaurant with us today. It's not any of those 28 guys. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, in that big book it says that we became sold on the ideas contained in this book. And if you're new, and I know some of you are, I hope that I've sold you on some of the ideas contained in the book. Because I believe that's my responsibility today. Is to be an example. And when I'm up here speaking, I hope that I'm selling you on the ideas contained in the book. Not on Mike's opinions. You got my version of my story. If you ask my mother my version of my story, you're going to get a completely different version. (laughs) You ask some of my brothers or my sister, you'll get a different. Most of their versions are worse than mine. But this is my version. This is how I remember it and what I saw and what I've lived and experienced. Dr. Bob, in his last talk, said that if you took Alcoholics Anonymous and you simmered it down to just two things, you'd have love and service. John said, I said to John, what's love? And he said, love is an unbiased attitude of goodwill toward everyone. I said, huh, what does that mean? He said, that just means you don't wish somebody ill will. You don't wish that guy get hit by a car. And I'm thinking, okay, I can love him then. See, he lowered the bar down so that I could reach it. He didn't make me come up to where he was. Isn't that the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous? Our job is to meet them where they are. I know some of the things in AA's changed. I know we don't have the 12-step calls like we used to have, but we have them every night at our meetings when we meet that person where they're at, when they come in here and they say, we need help. And I beg you to extend that hand of kindness and consideration that's been extended to you and to me. A bell is not a bell until we ring it. And a song is not a song until we sing it. And love wasn't put in our hearts to stay. Love is only love when we give it away. And AA is only AA when we give it away. Thank you.